Why do we often neglect the importance of our body when it comes to religious practice? We'll explore that question and more today in episode 20 of Adventology entitled, Chasing Perfection. Welcome to Adventology, the podcast dedicated to helping you find answers to the big questions of life so that you can live a life of influence that ultimately impacts the world for eternity. Each week, we will explore a different chapter in the story of humanity that centers around Jesus Christ and culminates at His second coming. Whether you know Jesus already or are simply curious about what the Bible has to say about the end of the world, this podcast has something for you. Here now is the host of Adventology, Travis Walker. Have you ever caught yourself in one of those moments when you begin to feel like the life you're living is not the one that was meant for you? I know I have. The anxiety about what is versus what life was supposed to be can easily sneak up on us before we realize it and paralyze us like a panic attack. What we wanted was perfect, and what we got instead was disappointment. But where did we get this idea that our lives were supposed to be perfect and turn out the way exactly like we had planned? I mean, it's almost as if the desire for perfection is actually built into our DNA. And if you think about it, though, the reason we often believe we deserve perfection is because the fantasy of perfection is sold to us on a daily basis. Whether it's the movies we watch, the websites we browse, or even the social media we post, time and time again we find this veneer of perfection is ever-present to both entice and torture us at the same time. Thus, it is our dissatisfaction with reality that drives us toward the fantasy of perfection. But then again, when we look a little deeper, it may not be perfection so much as completeness or wholeness that we are pursuing like a never-ending scavenger hunt looking to find the part of us that seems to be missing. Could the pursuit of perfection actually be a pursuit of God? Of course, philosophers such as Frederick Nietzsche would say no and suggest instead that the concept of God is a human invention part of an evolutionary stage in our development as a species to push us toward perfection. And as our imagination becomes reality, we no longer need God and thus can declare triumphantly that God is dead. Nietzsche believed that our perfection as a species was not only possible, but inevitable, and that in the future, our race would evolve into a new kind of human being he called the Overman, or more popularly known as the Superman. For Nietzsche, the Superman was more than a philosophic theory. It was a vision. It represented his hope for humanity. The Superman no longer needed God because the Superman was God. Now I have to say, on a certain level, I resonate with his vision for humanity. It is compelling to believe that somehow our human species is advancing on a natural path toward perfection. Unfortunately, though, 
History has proven this social Darwinism propagated by Nietzsche has frightful consequences, mainly that it can be used to justify almost any abuse of power in the name of purity. Of course, Hitler was greatly influenced by Nietzsche and his concept of the Superman and believed the German master race had grown weak due to the influence of non-Aryans in Germany. To Hitler, the survival of the German Aryan race depended on its ability to maintain the purity of its gene pool. Thus, in the name of German nationalism and pride, Nazis targeted certain groups or races that they considered biologically inferior for extermination. These included Jews, Gypsies, Poles, Soviets, people with disabilities, and even homosexuals. This is the dark side of pursuing perfection. When we believe it is possible to purify and perfect ourselves, then we naturally move toward trying to purify and perfect one another, resulting in the uniformity of the majority and the persecution of the minority. Interestingly, the Bible predicts a massive worldwide movement towards uniformity in the last days in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. However, rather than a physical uniformity, as was the goal of the Nazis, in this case, it is a moral uniformity that is sought. Starting in verse 15, we read, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, throughout history, there has been much speculation as to what the mark of the beast actually is. And yes, we will eventually be getting into that in more detail on this podcast in a future episode. But for now, it is enough to understand that it is something that will test the loyalty to God and his commandments of every believer just prior to Jesus' second coming. In fact, there is no stronger language in the Bible than that found in the third angel's message of Revelation 14, warning us not to receive the mark of the beast and its consequences. In Revelation 14, verse 9, we read, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now you can begin to see the dilemma. On the one hand, if we don't receive the mark of the beast, everything we own will be taken away from us and eventually we will be condemned to die. On the other hand, if we take the mark of the beast, we will fall under the most severe judgment of God contained in the entire Bible. 
Will we be able to stand for God when every earthly support is taken away from us? Now, if you don't know the answer to that question, you've come to the right place. This podcast is all about preparing you to stand for God when the world is bowing down to the image of the beast. Thankfully, God has given us an interpretive key to the book of Revelation and all of its mysteries in the little apocalyptic book of Daniel found right between the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament. In fact, it is the only book of the Bible that explicitly states that it would be sealed until the time of the end, meaning the book of Daniel was specifically written for those who do not want to be conformed to the world, but want to be transformed into the image of Jesus instead. It was written not for the superman who doesn't need God, but rather for the man who recognizes his own weakness and in humility is willing to come to God for the strength that he needs. It is to this book now that we turn our attention. And it is in Daniel chapter 1 that we are both introduced to Daniel and his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who of course are better known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it is in this chapter that we are told how they ended up in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem had been sacked, and the temple of God robbed from all of its sacred treasures, and many of the noblemen and their children were taken captive and brought back to Babylon. These youth were to be pushed through an intense three-year re-education program designed to bring them into harmony with all the language, beliefs, and customs of the Babylonians. In essence, they are being trained as wise men in the kingdom. However, almost as soon as their training had begun, they were tested in a way they had never been tested before. We pick up the story in verse 8 of chapter 1 of the book of Daniel. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearances be examined before you and the appearances of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge 
and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, out of all the stories of the book of Daniel, this story on face value would seem most insignificant. I mean, why does it matter what Daniel and his three friends ate or drank? Why would God inspire a story about health and temperance at the beginning of a deeply prophetic book written for the people of God living in the last days? Could it be that health and temperance of the body has a direct connection to the mind and ultimately the spirit in all of us? That seems to be what the story is teaching us here. Because Daniel and his three friends did everything in their power to honor God by honoring their bodies. And because of that, God was able to bless them above everyone else, not only in their school, but the entire kingdom. Time and again, they were able to see what others couldn't see. They were able to stay true to God and his commandments when everyone around them was compromising. Thus, what we see Daniel introducing us to is the fact that that human beings are not just brains on a stick, but we are an integrated whole, mind, body, and spirit. This is a principle we find in the New Testament as well. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it this way, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 As you can see, the idea of moving toward perfection is divinely inspired into all of us. We may never get it right, but that is not because it is not God's will for us to move out of the old life and into the new, from sin to righteousness in our spirit, from ignorance to knowledge of truth in our minds, and from disease to health in our bodies. You see, to neglect the development of any of these integrated parts of us is to neglect the development of the whole. That is why we read Paul saying in one of his other letters, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you're not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6 19 through 20. Thus, any form of discipleship that only focuses on spiritual formation and not on the mind or the body's formation as well is incomplete. We don't give God only a part of ourselves when we choose to follow Him, we give Him everything because He first gave everything to us. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. God wants to make every part of us today that is weak, strong for tomorrow. Because tomorrow is coming, whether we like it or not. And one day soon, there's going to be a tomorrow where we're going to be tested in regard to what we believe. Does it really matter if we fail or pass the test? What do you think would have happened to Daniel and his three friends if they had shrugged their shoulders about eating that which they knew God had forbidden them to eat? Would their story still have turned out the same way? It's hard to imagine it would have, especially in light of these words from Jesus. 
He said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So as you can see, according to Jesus, it is the small victories that prepare us for the big ones. It is doubtful we can fully appreciate everything God is trying to prepare for us if we are not fully committed to following him in all aspects of our life today. Thus, Daniel and his three friends are inspired illustrations of what the life of one preparing for the soon coming of Jesus looks like. In one of Paul's other letters, he compared our preparation for heaven with those preparing for a race here on earth. He said, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus not with uncertainty, thus I fight not as one who beats the air, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 There is no doubt, then, that taking care of our body should be a primary concern for those who want to be ready for Jesus. So what does that look like practically? I can't tell you specifics, but what I can tell you is that a plant-based diet was the original diet we were given to eat in Eden. It was the diet undertaken by Daniel and his three friends in Babylon, and it will be our diet in heaven and on the new earth. Today, there's plenty of scientific research indicating that a plant-based diet is more healthy than a meat or dairy-based one. And so I encourage you to do the research for yourself. Of course, it is not only what you eat, but how you live the rest of your life too. What you drink, how much you exercise and get outside, and how often you get a good night's sleep. All of it adds up in the end to a better performing body, which facilitates a better performing mind that is connected to an ever-present spirit of God. So do you currently feel plateaued in your spiritual vitality and knowledge of the scriptures? Do you find yourself struggling to stay interested in spiritual things? It could be that you are discounting your daily lifestyle as a contributing factor to your overall spirituality. The book of Daniel teaches us that it's going to take more than a knowledge of the truth to stand in the last days. It's going to require a faith that we have tested in the small things first, the things that no one else knows except you and God. Won't you begin developing that trust with him today? Won't you allow him to sanctify you in mind, body, and spirit? Won't you begin today to find your completeness and satisfaction in him? Thanks for listening to this episode of Adventology. Our goal on this podcast is for you to be ready for Jesus. And the best way to be ready for Jesus is to spend time getting to know him. Knowing Jesus is everything. That is why we spent the time today studying whole person discipleship. But don't just take my word for it. Study it out for yourself. 
And for a hands-on experience, I encourage you to check out our website, adventology.com, where you can get a transcript of today's episode along with any of the previous episodes we've already published. Also, while you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter, support our podcasts through Patreon, or find us through Facebook. There are so many different ways you connect with us, and I encourage you to do so. All right, well, I enjoyed our time together today, and I look forward to seeing you back on our next episode when we will explore the investigative judgment with attorney and former pastor Steve Allred. Maranatha.